The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merrick, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. Good evening and hello again, everybody. Welcome to Sports Talk New York on WGBB Merrick, Long Island, New York. Bill Donahue here on the Sunday night, the 17th day of October in 2021. Our engineer, Brian Graves, is entrenched across the way, as always. We got a blockbuster show lined up for you ahead tonight, folks. We'll talk some baseball first and welcome in two. Rock and Roll Hall of Famers. Leading off, we'll talk to former Mets bullpen ace and 1986 world champion Roger McDowell. Up second, we'll speak with former Mets skipper Bobby Valentine about his new book, Valentine's Way, My Adventurous Life and Times. Then we switch gears and we'll talk to the original drummer of Chicago, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Danny Serafin. And finally, we'll welcome in the former keyboard god of, yes, the great Rick Wakeman will join us. So sit back, relax, get comfortable. Uh, enjoy Sports Talk New York tonight on GBB. We are going to be hot as a pistol tonight. As always, before we begin, I invite you to follow us on our Facebook page. It's called WGBB Sports Talk New York. How do you like that? You'll find sports information, show information, so much more. Stop by, look and like. We're on LinkedIn. We are on Twitter at WGBB Sports Talk, and you can follow me on Twitter at B Donahue WGBB. And if you miss a show, don't worry, because we are all, archive them all out on the website, and you can listen to them at your leisure. Well, our first guest, he was a key component on the 1986 World Champion New York Mets Ball Club. He pitched five innings in the famous 16-inning game. Game six in the NLCS against the Houston Astros, and he was the winning pitcher in deciding game seven in the World Series against the Boston Red Sox. It's great to welcome to the show tonight, Roger McDowell. Roger, good evening. Hey, Bill. How are you doing? Oh, we're doing fine here. How are you doing? Just fantastic. Thank you. Outstanding. Good. Now, doing my research, Roger, I found out you're from the Queen City, Cincinnati, Ohio. Um if I had to guess, I would guess who your teams were. But you can tell us, who were your teams, who were your idols as a kid in Ohio? Uh, my team were the Dodgers. Wow, uh, okay. I remember back, uh, back in the 60s and 70s, uh, I know for sure in the 70s, the Dodgers were in the uh, uh, same division as the Reds, the mm-hmm. Braves, until... Uh, guess uh, expansion and they moved everybody around but uh, my team i really i really liked the dodgers um that was the team i was growing up and they were always uh vying with uh the cincinnati reds and so uh i liked them my favorite player was uh a guy that is very well well known in new york uh tom siever and uh yes so that was uh that was my uh, early childhood. Uh, Tom Seaver was my guy, and the Dodgers were my team. Outstanding. Well, speaking of Cincinnati, I, I just want to relate a quick story. I was on a business trip to Cincinnati uh, probably back in the late 80s. I, we stopped at Riverfront one night. We were, we were having a few huddle poles. 
Uh, that's the, yeah. the local beer out there, sure. folks. Is Hudapol. We were calling them. It's, it's, it's a, it's a Hudapol. Hudapol. Okay. We were calling them hold, hold your poles, uh, is what we were yeah. calling them. It did not endear us to the natives. They found out we were from New York. One of them pipes up and says, Oh boy, we loved when Pete beat up Buddy Harrelson. And I said, Oh, <laughs> that's something because I really liked when Ray Knight punched Eric Davis in the face. Oh, and it was off from there, Roger. Yeah. So let, let's so talk. About, uh, you were not, you know what? You were not so endearing. Then. No, exactly. Yeah. I wasn't their favorite guy that night. That's for sure. Now, yeah, it's I, funny because, uh, you know, you talk about Riverfront Stadium and, uh, Obviously, it opened up in 1970, uh-huh. and uh, I remember as a kid, I went to uh, I went to the last game before Riverfront Stadium was Crosley Field, right? And they they had that bank in left field, uh, and Ron Paranowski, my pitching coach in, with the Dodgers, he would always uh, make it a point to tell me he had a triple there because uh, the guy fell down going up the hill in left field, <laughs> but uh, I, I went to the last game at Crosley and the first game at uh, Riverfront. So wow. that's, uh, that was pretty cool. Yeah, I remember I spent some time in Blue Ash, and uh, the, they told me about a place that had a reproduction of Crosley Field. I don't know exactly where it was, but I found it, and it was pretty cool. Yeah, it is. I, I, I know what you're talking about. I have not been there. Yeah. Um, I haven't been back to Cincinnati on a consistent basis since I left for college when I was 18, so... Um, my time there was just, uh, you know, coming in and out and, uh, you know, the, the time that I did have, I, I would, uh, venture down to, uh, Brooksville, Kentucky and, uh, visit my dad's grave. So I, I, I didn't have yeah. a whole lot of time to do a lot of other exploring. Did, do you remember, Roger, the, that game when, when Ray and Eric did go at it? And I, I remember Davey had the kid at third base and he was shuttling you and Jesse between pitcher and right field. Uh, tell us a little about that game. How did you enjoy going back and forth from the outfield? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I remember it. I remember, uh, you know, we were down uh, to our last out, and Keith hit a fly ball to right field, and it was uh, pretty much, a, you know, as they used to say, a can of corn. A can of corn and for and Dave, for Dave Parker, 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 yeah. Dave Parker dropped it in right field, and we ended up tying the game, and, uh, and then uh, I'm not sure what inning it was after that that we got into the uh, the skirmish there with Ray and Eric Davis at third base. But, uh, you know, there were players. Uh, we were short of players. The Reds were short of players. And, uh, you know, back then, Jesse and I used to, during batting practice, we used, we used to get our conditioning um, in by shagging during batting practice. And we would run all over the field. And so... I don't know if it was Davey or um, uh, Bud Harrelson or if it was uh, Mel Stoudemire said, you know what, uh, you know what, let's put you know Roger and Jesse uh, in the outfield and vice versa pitch, mm-hmm. and we can move them around depending on who the hitter was. But uh, yeah, I remember that very well. You know, I mean. Uh, I know Tony Perez, I threw a sinker into Tony Perez and he took a line drive to right field and Jesse caught it. And then yeah. when Jesse, when Jesse was pitching, I was in left field and, uh, I believe it was, uh, it was either Eddie Milner or Max Venable, the left-handed hitter, lofted a fly ball to, it was more left field than center field, but, uh, I was in left field and I'm getting ready to make this catch and, uh, all of a sudden, right before it hits my glove, Lenny steps on my foot. Um, 
who was in center field, Lenny steps on my foot and catches the ball. And I said, I was like, you know, dude, I said, what, what are you doing? He goes, just wanted to be sure. Just yeah. wanted to be sure. <laughs> yeah. so, it was, uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And then uh, Hojo hits the home run to put us up, and uh, we we go on to win that game. But it was, uh, you know, I was 86. And, yeah. You know, I mean, it was a. Uh, it was one of uh, many eventful games during the course it of the It was. Year. Not much went wrong for you guys during the regular season, that's for sure. Now, you, you uh, your arsenal included, Roger, a, a fantastic sinker. Now, that came to you as a result of an elbow injury, I read. Well, what happened was uh, in, in high school, there was a, a bird dog scout for the Phillies. His name was Larry Grafer. Mm-hmm. And uh, the summer league team I played on, um, he and another um, bird dog scout who was with the White Sox um, by the name of Doug Lauman, they were uh, they were the coaches on our team, and so uh, I didn't have ways to the to the field. I didn't have ways to the games during the that summer, um, other than if somebody picked me up. And so Larry would always pick me up, but uh, you know, I I probably. I probably topped out at 81, 82. And so he, he showed me the two seam fastball and, uh, we were playing catch one day. It's just him and I, and we were playing catch one day and I remember throwing it and, and he went to catch it and, and he missed it and it hit him in the knee and he went down. And so he said, that's, that, that's a pretty good pitch for you. Mm-hmm. And so I started throwing the two seam. I, I had very small hands. Um, and, you know, my velocity wasn't all that great. I mean, when I graduated high school, I was 5'8", 135 pounds. And, uh, the summer, uh, between my senior high school year and going to Bowling Green State University, I grew four inches. And, uh, I didn't put a whole lot much more weight on, but I did grow four inches. And so, uh, the sinker became my pitch. Uh, and it was predominantly a sinker and occasionally a slider. I tried to develop a change-up in the minor leagues, and it was okay. Uh, but when I got to the big leagues, uh, it was about getting people out. So I relied on the sinker. And uh, you know, when Gary uh, Carter came over in the trade, and uh, the very first spring training was, was 85, and I remember Gary coming up to me in the outfield during uh, one of our batting practices, and he says, listen, he says, I don't know if you're going to make the team, but what I'm going to do during spring training is I'm going to set up down the middle and you just throw to my glove and let the sinker work. Mm-hmm. He said, uh, that, that was, that was his philosophy with uh, Steve Rogers when he had him in Montreal. And so that's what I did. And so uh, it was, uh, you know, credit to Gary to give me the confidence to throw the pitch and also, uh, the ability to throw a pitch, uh, consistently, hopefully for strikes and strike the ball. Good story, Roger. We got Roger McDowell with us tonight on Sports Talk New York. Now, uh, if you don't remember, folks, yeah, Roger, Roger with the sinker was, it was a ground ball specialist and Jesse, the lefty out of the pen, was more of a strikeout threat. Let's talk a little bit about game six in Houston, Roger. Uh, set the stage for us, uh, for that and, uh, what you went through to get ready for that stint. Well, I mean, it was a game, uh, we we knew what we were up against. Mike Scott had already beat us twice. Uh, we were um, down three to nothing, I think, uh, in the ninth inning. Uh, 
I think Aguilera, Rick, I think Rick had, uh, relieved Bobby, um, and had pitched and kept us in the game at three to nothing. And Lenny comes up and pitched the triple to right center field. It gets, kind of gets us going. And, uh, we score, end up scoring three runs in the ninth inning. And, um, so, um, I go down to warm up in case it is a tie game. We go extra innings. And Jesse had already pitched, I think, a couple games, uh, in multiple innings in that series. So, um, I, I, uh, came into the game and, uh, you know, was fortunate enough to, uh, pitch five innings. Um, and it was not a team that I was, um, particularly successful against. It was a team that during the course of the year had pretty much had num- my number when I, when I pitched and, you know, if you remember, Jesse and I were co-closers, so it mm-hmm. was depending on the lineup and how the lineup stacked up at the end of the game, whether Jesse closed or I closed. And so, you know, the, the, uh, the Astros had a lot of left-handed hitters. They played on AstroTurf and AstroDome, and they were not a, a, a team that I, you know, I, I had faced a whole lot. But when I did that year, I remember uh, going into the series, there, there was a uh, USA Today article, um, and it talked about you know, the matchups during the course of the year um, against the Astros. And I remember, I mean, I was like 0-2 or 0-3 against the Astros in the year and had an ERA of over 12 against the Astros. And so, you know, it, it was not a series that I was going to get a whole lot of, uh, I thought, action in. And so, uh, you know, I pitched an inning or two innings, and my turn came up to um, in the lineup whether I was going to hit or not, and Larry Anderson was the pitcher. And I remember, I remember, uh, you know, I knew my turn was coming up to to hit. And usually, you know, you get pinch hit for, especially as a reliever. But uh, you know, Mel came down to me on the bench and said, "Hey, there's a good possibility that you're going to hit." And so, I think with one out, I went up to hit and I hit a ground ball to second base for the second out. And then I went out and I think I pitched two more innings after that. But uh, yeah, it was uh, you know very fortunate uh, to be able to to you know be successful that night because we were facing Mike Scott um, yeah. the next day if we go to Game Seven. Um, so it, it didn't look uh, it didn't look very promising, and so uh, we we felt we had to win that game. Yeah, I remember we were leaving work and we said, "Let's go down and uh, watch the the last couple of innings." Uh, I I think this is it, you know. So we went down to uh, yeah. the the local McCann's in Manhattan, and we ended up getting yeah. out of there at ten o'clock at night. <laughs> so it, yeah, it, well, I mean that's I mean you hear stories all the time. These guys, I yeah, mean, it was in the documentary, you know, it was uh-huh. in the documentary about everybody is like, you know what, the, you know, we're gonna watch the end of the game and then go home. Well, you know what, the never the end of the game never came, right? You know, it's like yeah. these guys are these guys are waiting around. They're watching games in the limo. They're they're they're, they're watching games at uh, you know the appliance store that has the TV uh, in, <laughs> yeah. in the uh, in the window. You know, listening to the game on the radio, and it's kind of like you know they never got home. It was like you know the right. game never ended, or if they if they did get home, it's like. My God, this this game is still going on. Are you kidding me? So, yeah, it was uh, it was a very uh, obviously it was a very eventful game. How about Game Six of the World Series against the Red Sox, Roger? Where were you when the fireworks started? Uh, I was in the clubhouse. Okay. I had already pitched that game, and I think I I, I want to say um, 
actually I was in line to get the loss. Um, I know Aggie gave up the a home run, but I was before that. I think I was in line to get the loss. Um, but uh, I was in the clubhouse because you know I don't know if anybody or you've watched the documentary. Yeah. But uh, there's somewhat of a superstition, and you know Keith talked about the superstition of you know where he was uh, uh, in Game Six. And he yeah, he wasn't moving. Right. Office. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and that was, that was kind of. I mean, that's that was somewhat of a superstition. It's like you know what we're we're getting hits here. We're starting to come back here. I'm not going to move because you know it's it, it's either got hits, wins, or whatever it is where I'm sitting. So. I uh, I was in the clubhouse watching the, the game in our equipment manager's office, and um, so that's that's where I was. So we uh, we won't go into the '88 NLCS because that that's pretty much a nightmare for all of us. So we'll leave that be. Uh, Jesse gets traded in '88 to Randy Myers uh, comes in to be your partner, and then all of a sudden '89. What a trade! They ship you and Lenny off to the Phillies for Juan Samuel, which which is probably one of the worst trades in Met history. How did you feel leaving the Mets, Roger? Well, you know what I mean. I I, I think at the time, obviously, it's a team you got drafted by. I got drafted by. I came up through the system. I knew everybody. I was in, I was a Met, uh, but by '89. I was, you know, truth be told, I was not pitching very well. I mean, mm-hmm. I was, you know, I was relegated to, you know, uh, pitching early in the game if our starter, uh, you know, faltered. Um, and I, I, I wasn't really, I wasn't getting anybody out. Um, and so I think, I think it was mostly, you know, uh, a Lenny for Juan Samuel trade. And, uh, you know, that day, if you remember, the Phillies had traded Bedrosian to San Francisco, and so mm-hmm. um, they needed another reliever. I don't know this to be true, but I mean, you know, it's kind of like you know what? Okay, we'll give you uh, Dykstra and McDowell for Samwell, but uh, you know, at the time it was it was a little bit devastating. I mean, Dan, Lenny and I both were um, you know roommates in the minor leagues, so we came up together. Um, so. On, on one side, it was nice to be traded with someone that, you know, I had a really, really good relationship with and, um, someone who I, I enjoyed being around. But on, on the other hand, it was like, you know what, I'm, I'm leaving a, a whole lot of friends. And right. So, you know, uh, it was an opportunity, uh, opportunity for me, uh, to go somewhere and, and kind of get re-energized and, and have a little bit, uh, hopefully a, a an opportunity to, pitch to where, you know, I'm not done, um, you know, and, and kind of at the beginning of the 89 season, it, it was not, uh, it was not all very good, so I got an opportunity to go over there and end up being the, uh, pitching at the back end, and, you know, uh, I think I ended up in Philly with a, a one-something ERA. And yeah. So, I mean, it was, uh, it, it was I think it was beneficial. Lenny got to play every day, which he didn't get the opportunity in in, uh, in New York with the Mets, and so he had to prove his value. And you know, he went on to do really, really good things. And I just went on and tried to be as consistent as possible. 
you had success. At least you and Lenny had success in Philadelphia. Now, when you went to the Dodgers, how, how did you get along with Tommy Lasorda? Oh, Tommy was great. Okay. Tommy was fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, and like I said, you know, at the start of the interview, I mean, I grew up a Dodger fan. Right. I mean, so, I mean, to, to put the Dodger uniform on, I mean, it, I, 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 you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, at the time, you know, when, um, there, there's a, there's an aura about, you know, the Dodgers. There's an aura about, you know, the Yankees. I mean, whether it's real or not, I mean, you, you put a uniform on and you, there's, there's something there. And so mm-hmm. I was obviously, uh, with the Phillies, we were, we weren't going anywhere. And I got traded to the Dodgers and I got an opportunity to pitch, uh, you know, in meaningful games, um, you know, to go to, to the playoffs and, and beyond. And so uh, it was, a, it was a great opportunity. Tommy was terrific. Uh, you know, their whole staff, you know, with, with uh, Ron Paranowski and, mm-hmm. and uh, Joey Malfitano and Ben Hines. And, you know, I mean, Manny Moda, I mean, it was, it was, you know, you know, Baseball names too. I was going to say so some was, great baseball names coming alive there. For yeah, us. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was it was it was, it was in, enjoyable, you know. And so, you know, I got to I got to go there, and you know what? I mean, I, I met my wife there in L.A., and so you know, I got the opportunity to go overseas and play, uh, you know, in Korea and, and Japan with the, the friendship tour with the Dodgers mm-hmm. because of Mr. O'Malley's involvement with uh, you know Asian baseball, and so. I, I I had a great time. I mean, I, all, all the teams I played for um, throughout my career. I mean, I really relished the opportunity to play uh, baseball and and, uh, and learn. And uh, you know, I, I value and cherish those moments that I had an opportunity to uh, put on a major league baseball uniform and play as long as I did. I want to talk to you right now, Roger, about hot foot. As yeah. we, as we say in the video, you and Hojo, you kids, please. Don't try this at home. It's it's done by trained professionals. Give us Roger one great hot foot that you remember. Who was it? Bill Robinson. Yeah. It was Bill Robinson. Yeah. It was Bill Robinson. And you know, I mean, it was it was it was because you know, I remember very early in my uh, career with the the Mets, and you know, Davey Davey knew I liked to have a good time. But on the other hand, you know what? It's like you know, if you don't contribute, you know, <laughs> these good times don't last. So yeah, uh, I uh, I got an opportunity to to enjoy what I did. Uh, you know, I told these kids the other day when I was talking to them, I said, you know, this baseball field is the best office in the world. And so, you know, when when you come to baseball field, enjoy it and have fun. And so mm-hmm. I had an opportunity to have a lot of fun. But uh, yeah, Bill Robinson was was the best because you know he was a, he was a coach and he wasn't playing and you know it, it didn't it didn't distract uh, a whole lot from the game from, you know, getting somebody uh, a hot foot uh, that was playing in the game. And obviously you don't want to get a guy on the bench because, I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, he's on the bench. So um, we were, in, again, in Cincinnati and at, at Riverfront Stadium, and there was uh, underneath the stands, there was, you know, you had to crawl to get underneath the stands and uh, to get to the bench, uh, the back of the bench. And so – uh, ended up happening. I, I put a hot foot on Bill Robinson, and uh, he goes out. It's a night game, and he, he goes out to, for coach first base. And granted, you, you got to remember some of these hot foots. You know, a lot of them were duds. 
but this one was <laughs> not. And so Bill Robinson goes out to coach first base. And for, I, I don't know how, but the camera, uh, Bill Webb, who is, uh, yeah, long time <laughs> director for the, for, uh, the Mets, uh, television, he got, he got wind of it. And so he had the cameras on Bill Robinson. Well, the Reds bench, uh, you know, if you remember Riverfront Stadium, the benches were pretty close to the field. Yeah. And so, um, Pete Rose was the player manager at the time. Well, he catches wind of it. So now all the players, Pete Rose, the coaches, are down at the uh, outfield side of the, the, the bench, and they're waiting for this hot foot to go off at Bill Robinson, who's right in front of him at first base. And so it, it just so happens, I think, uh, there was one out. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the inning, this hot foot goes off, and it's, uh, it, it, it's pretty flammable. So it lights up a little bit, and... And Bill doesn't know anything because he's got his hands on his knees. He's paying attention to the game <laughs> and the pitcher and the hitter. And uh, so this hot foot goes off, and it was probably 10 or 15 seconds before he realizes because he saw the smoke coming in front of him. And so, uh, you know, the Pete Rose, who was, you know, growing up in Cincinnati, I mean, he enjoyed it. And they enjoyed it. Our players enjoyed it. And Bill Robinson, not so much. Gotcha. Yeah, that was that was a classic. That you can catch that one on on film, I think, folks. Bill Robinson. Yeah, uh, with the so hot it's foot. somewhere out there. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, Some, there's a lot out there. So I think that's got to be somewhere. I want to talk to you quickly. We got a couple of minutes, Roger, about Seinfeld. Now, Keith gets a lot of play out of the episode because he's up here in New York on TV, and and they talk about it occasionally. Gary, Keith, and Ron on the TV. And once in a while, Jerry shows up, and he's in the booth. And, of course, everybody remembers the episode. Uh, how many times do people come up to you and talk about Seinfeld? Uh, probably more than baseball. Wow. Uh, it's, wow. Either, it's, either, it's either, usually it goes Seinfeld, Rock and Jock, MTV Rock and Jock, and then I was a baseball player. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's, uh, I, I did see that. It was it was like uh, at the end of the season, Jerry was in the booth and yeah. uh, talking about uh, Seinfeld and, and Keith was there. But, uh, yeah, it was a great opportunity, great experience. And who knew? I mean, it was the second season of Seinfeld. And who knew it was going to become uh, the iconic uh, series that it became. So, you know, I was fortunate enough to uh, be a part of it. Uh, and really, I mean, you know, if you think about it, I mean, there's only two hour-long series, two-part series and that was, uh, that was our episode, which was, I think, entitled The Boyfriend. The Boyfriend, and, right, you yeah. Know, you know, Keith, Keith, obviously, was the boyfriend. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, you know it, it, the, the, the line, uh, of Keith saying, you know, uh, you know, I'm Keith Hernandez. Yeah. Know, don't you know who I, I am? I can do anything I want. So, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, and I think they had, I think they had somebody else Tend for that role, but uh, Keith, uh, knowing Larry David and, and Jerry, said, "No, you know the guy. The, the guy is perfect for this is Roger." So yeah, I have to give uh, Keith credit for giving me that opportunity. Uh, for those folks who don't remember, it was Roger who was the second spitter up uh, on the gravelly road that hit Kramer yeah. in, the, in, in the head with with a big loogie and uh, Newman causing yeah, Newman to drop his Newman. cap. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, oh, and, and Jerry explained it. Uh, 
you know, it was, it was a nice uh, parody. It was a funny parody off the uh, JFK. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing too, Roger, that at that point people can laugh about JFK. I mean, it's like when you see Abraham Lincoln in car, you know, Abraham Lincoln, Lincoln's birthday on car commercials and he's got his hat and he's dancing and people yeah. make fun of Abraham Lincoln. I guess it's, you know, the Kennedy thing's kind of wearing off now. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's, a, I don't know if it's so much the, you know, the assassination, but, uh, you know, the, the, uh, investigation into the second shooter yeah yeah that was it the movie well roger i tell you it's been a real pleasure thanks for taking time out of your sunday night to spend some of it with us here on long island all right bill i enjoyed it and uh you know it's uh always a pleasure to to speak to met fans all the best roger thanks again all right thanks that's Roger McDowell, ladies and gentlemen. Up next on Sports Talk New York, we welcome in former Mets skipper Bobby Valentine. Stick around, folks. Listening to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. All right, folks, we're back with Sports Talk New York on WGBB. Uh, A great time of year. We got football, the MLB playoffs, some great games uh, so far in all the series. I, I can't help think of the long winter ahead, though, with no baseball. Like, somebody asked Rogers Hornsby once, what, what do you do in the winter with no baseball? He says, I look out in the wind, out the window and wait for spring. But, uh, we always, we always have books to keep the memories of green grass and blue skies alive. And that leads us to our next guest. This gentleman, he's currently the athletic director at Sacred Heart University, and he's a candidate for mayor of Stanford, Connecticut here in 2021. He's been a player, a manager, broadcaster. He's a restaurateur. Of course, we remember him most vividly as the skipper of the Mets. He has a new book coming out on November 30th that we're going to watch for. That'll help pass the nights without baseball, folks. Sitting by the Hot Stove is written uh, with our friend Peter Golenbach. And it's titled The Valentine Way, My Adventurous Life and Times. It's an honor and a pleasure to welcome in tonight Bobby Valentine. Bobby, good evening. Well, great being with you. Thank you for that great introduction. And Yeah, the book's going to be coming out at the end of November, and uh, it sure was fun hooking up with Peter Golan back, looking back at, uh, I don't know, about 50 years of baseball yeah. Experiences. It's pretty cool. Yeah, we will look for that, and we'll talk about that in a bit. I want to ask you, Bobby, you're a Connecticut native, of course. Uh, oh, people may not know you were an all-state player in football, baseball, and track. Who were your teams and your idols uh, growing up in Connecticut when you were a kid? 
Well, you know, when I grew up, uh, the Yankees were the team because ah, the Mets weren't around. Right. You know, the, I was 12 years old when the, the Mets came into existence, and I already had my all my baseball cards with my favorite players. So I was a Yankee fan as a kid. Okay. Interesting. That's great. <laughs> now, I also read... Do- <laughs> You have something to say, Bobby? Go ahead. No, you got it. Okay. Uh, what I read, Bobby, is you're a champion ballroom dancer. As, as a teenager, you won regional competition, uh, at the Waldorf Astoria. You danced at the 64 World's Fair. Uh, we've had Meta World Peace on the show, Amy Purdy. Why haven't we seen you on Dancing with the Stars yet? Oh, that's interesting. You know, when the show first came out, um, I knew the producers and uh, they actually talked to me about doing it. And, you know, it took, it takes months of practice, you know, and, yeah. and my leg had been broken right. you know, for the last 35, 40 years. I didn't have the great balance I once had. I could do most of the steps, but I wasn't going to get on dancing with stars and fall down on a national stage. So <laughs> no, I took a pass. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Now, you're drafted by the Dodgers. You still went to school at Southern Cal and also where I can't find it. Where, where Arizona else? State. Right. Arizona State. And uh, your roommate at USC was, of course, the great Billy Buckner. And while you were playing at Ogden, you run into Tommy Lasorda and you start a lifelong friendship. What's the effect that Tommy had on your career, Bobby? Oh, a major effect. Uh, you know, I got off the plane in Ogden, Utah as an 18-year-old, wide, wide-eyed and bushy-tailed player from Stanford, Connecticut. I was the number one draft choice of the Dodgers. <laughs> you know, I was excited to get there, and here was this smiling uh, little Italian guy waiting for me as I got off the plane, <laughs> introducing himself as Tommy Lasorda and uh, saying that he was going to be my rookie league manager. And you know, he was a dad away from home. He was a, a mentor, a teacher, a friend who, um, you know, was, was with all of us through thick and thin. And, and he, he modeled me. He, he made me what I was as a young player. Uh, you know, he was a manager of the year a few times. I was the MVP of the year a few times. So we kind of rose up the ranks together and, uh, we went to winter ball together. We went to triple A together. The problem was I got to the big leagues before he did. So I had to leave him back in triple A mm-hmm. and, uh, I really missed him in the big leagues. I'll be truthful. Good man. A great ambassador for baseball. That's, that's for certain, Bobby. Now you, you were a, in a group of, of great young Dodgers that included Bill Buckner and, uh, guys like Billy Grabarkowitz. Then they, they decide to ship you to California to the Angels. Frank Robinson comes to the, to, to the Dodgers. How did you feel about leaving LA? Well, actually, yeah. Um, you know, I was a player rep at the time. It wasn't a good thing to do as a college kid. I was kind of a big mouth as I always was. And, uh, you know, when, when, when you're the player rep in those days, that was for the first uh, collective bargaining agreement ever, you know, and, and ownership didn't like the idea that people were, uh, you know, forming a union, trying to, to get some basic rights, trying to get an agreement. And, 
So uh, I actually got traded to the, at the time, California Angels with Frank Robinson. Uh, we were in the mm-hmm. same trade to go down for Andy Messerschmidt, who ah, happened right. to be a player rep, right? He was the player rep yeah. for the California Angels. So they kind of switched, uh, we switched teams, and, and as it turned out, Andy in 1976 was the first free agent ever. Right. Uh, even though it was, you know, Kurt, Kurt Flood who, who brought the case, um, to the courts, uh, it was really Andy Messerschmidt who tested it and became the first free agent. Right. He goes to Atlanta and becomes Channel 17, folks. That's what he wore yeah. on the back, on the back of his uniform before they decided <laughs> to put the kibosh on that. Now, Bobby, this happened four days after your 23rd birthday. You're going to catch a, a home run ball by that great power hitter, Dick Green, of all people. And tell us about how how you broke your leg. Yeah, well, it was an interesting situation. You know, a few days before, I was the shortstop for the Angels, and um, the center fielder got a stiff back, and the manager, Bobby Winkles, who happened to be the first collegiate manager to ever go from the college ranks to the major league ranks. Um, you know, that he was at Arizona State. He became the manager of the California Angels. I loved Bobby. He loved me. I, I literally told him one time, I'll run through a wall for you. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he said, hey, how about playing center field? We, we need to give the center fielder a break. I said, I'll do it. I went out there. Nolan Ryan threw his first no-hitter. We decided to stick with it. And um, before the game on the 17th of May, Bobby Winkles came over to me and said, hey, you're going back to shortstop tomorrow. Now uh, everything's settled with uh, the other outfielders and the infielders. I said, that's great. Mm-hmm. And as you said, the light-hitting Dick Green came to the plate. I was playing in shallow right center field. He hit a ball off of Rudy May into left center field. I ran for the ball, didn't uh, pay attention to the fence, and uh, ran at it full speed. My spike caught in the, the uh, tarp that was there, and uh, both my tibia and fibula snapped, and uh, I wound up on my back looking at the bottom of my shoe. And, uh yeah. And, Nasty. and from there on, I was something other than a center fielder or a shortstop. And uh, I tried to hang on. And I played another six years in the major leagues, but never played at a very high level. And um, uh, I guess that's how I became a coach and then a manager. Understood, Bobby. Yeah, a terrible story. We're speaking with Bobby Valentine tonight on Sports Talk New York. I want to talk to you about the, the famous incident with uh, Mike Piazza. Uh, Randy Marsh tosses you for uh, arguing an interference call against Mike Piazza. Uh, you go back. Yeah. You go back to the dugout, but you come back out. How, how did you get the idea, Bobby, to come back out in disguise? <laughs> yeah. In med history. Uh, yeah. Gave up lead. I called the pitch out. Mike uh, went to catch the ball. The umpire said he stepped out of the catcher's box before the pitcher delivered the ball and called the catcher's balk on Mike Piazza. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, he went ballistic on Randy Marsh, and I came out 
and asked Randy if I could get thrown out for what I was thinking. When he said no, I told him what I was thinking. I got <laughs> thrown out of the game. Uh, I went up into the uh, got up into the clubhouse, and uh, Oral Hershiser and Robin Ventura were up there. We had some new coaches out on the team at the time, and uh, Robin said, "Hey, these, those guys don't even know who's in our bullpen. You got to go out and help us win this game." And I said, "I can't do that, Robin." <laughs> And he threw me a pair of dark sunglasses, and he threw me a hat, told me to take off my uniform, which I did. And he said, go on out there and, uh, you know, lead us, lead us on the victory. I didn't think that uh, just the hat and the, and the sunglasses were enough. So when I got into the training room, uh, I took off uh, a couple of strips that you usually have underneath your eyes. The eye black, to, yeah. To glare out. <laughs> Yeah, and I put them underneath my nose, and they looked like a mustache. When I looked at the guys, they said, no one will ever know. <laughs> and I went out to the uh, dugout, sat there for about two pitches uh, before the camera from third base uh, side. Saw me sitting there, and um, the rest was history. You yeah. know, I was uh, in the dugout. I wasn't supposed to be there. We won the game a right. pitches later, but that's the main you know, thing. I got fined ten thousand dollars and suspended three days and they made it as the worst thing that ever happened in the history of Major League Baseball. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. And it's probably the only connect I have with the younger generation because that was twenty years ago. No one even knows that I was a manager or a player or a coach, but uh a lot of these young guys know that I was the guy who came back with the mustache and glasses. There you go, Bobby. Yeah, that that's it. You you go through a whole career and you, and you're famous for looking like Groucho Marx. That's a, that's amazing. <laughs> now, yeah, I want to talk to you, Bobby, about the Roger Clemens Mike Piazza incidents. The, the first time he he hits Mike in the head. What are your thoughts? What's going going through your head? Well, you know, Mike really owned Roger. He. <laughs> He never uh, swung at the inside pitch that Roger tried to get him out on, and he would force Roger to throw him something out over the plate. And when he did, Roger usually hit it really. I mean, uh, Mike Mike usually hit it really hard. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, we had one of those interleague series games, and Roger was going to brush him off the plate, and instead of making a good pitch and brushing him off the plate, he actually beamed him right in the helmet. Right. I thought he was going to go down and go out, but uh, luckily he stayed in the game. Uh, we didn't see Roger again until we played him in the World Series. And when we saw him in the World Series in the first at-bat, he got that pitch inside on Mike, broke Mike's bat in half when he swung at it. The ball went foul. Mike didn't know where the ball went, and he didn't realize where the bat went. Roger picked up the bat thinking it was the ball out of direction of Mike running down the first baseline. Yeah. And it was one of the ugliest scenes that I've ever seen. Mike didn't know what was going on. The players were a little dumbfounded. A lot of the guys like Lenny Harris and others thought that this should uh, ignite World War III and we should go to Dukes with the Yankees in the World Series. Yeah. Uh, luckily, <laughs> luckily, Mike didn't think so, and he was kind of calm. As, um, you know, he went and got another bat from the dugout, and uh, lo and behold, Roger got to stay in the game and pitch like a two-hitter, and 
<laughs> we didn't do a thing against the Yankees in that game until we took until Joe took Buster out of the game, and then we came back and made it a real close heartthrob with mm-hmm. Mar- Mariano finally getting the last out. Yeah, so the, that was uh, an ugly play for sure, Bobby, that, that we remember in the World Series. Uh, I'd like to talk to you now about the Mets' great efforts in the wake of the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center. Uh, all of a sudden, Shea Stadium turns into uh, an area for shipping supplies down to ground zero. And you guys come out and join the fray and and start working with the volunteers. Yeah, basically, we're the volunteers. And, um, you know, the stadium uh, operational crew took charge of it. But, you know, we had thousands of boxes to unpack and organize that um, everyone, you know, these thousands of volunteers who are down at Ground Zero trying to, uh, you know, work in a rescue and relief effort, working 24-7 in a pile of hot ash and soot. They were filthy, dirty. Their eyes were filled with this black soot. And um, what um, what we were trying to do on our send fresh supplies of everything that might be needed from soap to to visine to goggles to batteries to T-shirts and socks and underwear and jeans and uh, it was a gallon effort for sure uh, to to get the supplies down to Ground Zero. The problem is it never was a relief uh, effort because there were no victims that were rescued and uh, it turned it, it was a relief recovery and it turned just into a uh, seven days of everyone giving everything they had, and it was all in vain. But uh, our guys did a great effort of doing everything that they could. Fantastic. Yeah, and I, a couple of weeks ago, uh, during the anniversary of 9-11, I had Benny and Glendon on the show, and we were talking about the September 21st game, uh, the first game in New York following the terrorist attacks at the World Trade Center. The, the Mike Piazza home run, Bobby, where does that fit in your career as, as a, a highlight or a great moment? Oh, it, it's the greatest event I ever, uh, yeah. you know, had to take part in. Part in. It was 10 days after 9-11. No one thought we should be playing in New York. Somehow, some way, the Braves came up, our arch rivals, to, uh, you know, play a few miles from an airport um, in New York, uh, the place of uh, one of the three places of the terrorist attacks, and uh, you know everyone was unsettled. There was fear and 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 doubt and wonderment in the air for the entire event, which was quite the event. With um, you know Liza Minnelli uh, singing New New York, New York in the mm-hmm. seventh inning stretch, and. Um, Diana Ross singing the national anthem and and their, their first responders all in their different uniforms doing the chorus line kick yeah. down in the right field line during the New York New York. I mean it was a it was a spectacle to behold, but no one knew how to react. Everyone was kind of walking around in a daze and and wondering if we should be there, wondering if they could cheer, wondering if we'd ever get back to the way we were on September 10th. And when Mike hit that home run on September 21st in the eighth inning to put the Mets ahead 
Um, not only was it the loudest sound I ever heard off of a bat, but it was the loudest reaction I ever heard from a crowd that had tears of sadness before the, before the game. And Mike turned those tears of sadness into tears of joy. And uh, I really, really believe on that second of time that uh, the world changed and we, we began the healing process, which uh, so many people needed at the time. As Johnny Franco put it, Bobby, uh, you guys put uh, a Band-Aid on a very big wound. And uh, I thought that was a great way to describe it because everybody felt that now maybe we can get back to normal, as you say, after after Mike hit that that baseball out of Shea Stadium. Were you were you afraid, maybe Bobby, that something might happen that night? Oh, most assuredly, yeah. Everyone was. I mean, there's if certainty of when the next strike was going was going to occur, if it would occur, you know, the, the idea that, that, uh, we weren't safe 10 days ago, and now to think that, um, we were safe, and thank God it turned out that we were safe from right. that day on, uh, and, and our, our land has not been approached by any terrorist attacks since then. It's a, it's a credit to our military, to our, to our country, to the men and women who serve, and to our intelligence agencies for doing the right job. But at that time, 10 days after the attack, there sure was a lot of fear and sure was a lot of uncertainty. As you say, Bobby, nobody really knew how to act, and uh, things kind of turned around a little bit with Mike's home run. I I want to talk to you about your book, Bobby. Uh, The book, folks, is coming out November 30th. It's called The Valentine Way. My Adventurous Life and Times. How did you get uh, hooked up with Peter? I know he's been on the program before. He, he's a pretty prolific writer. Well, yeah, you know, actually, Peter uh, called me. He's from Stanford, Connecticut. Wow, right okay. Now. Yeah, and uh, he was living in Florida. He just said, hey, I've been going through some uh, years of experiences, fun times, uh some not so fun times, some mm-hmm. uh, exciting times, some some uh, crazy times, and uh, we we got them all in in a couple three hundred pages. And um, yeah, the the book is out there. And interestingly enough, you know, I I also managed in Japan, and when I left right. Japan, um, you know, there's a street named after me, and they they named it Valentine's Way. And uh, the name of the book is uh, After That Street, and it's called Valentine's Way. And, uh, you know, some of the things that uh, are in the book, when I read them, I can't believe they happened, even though I know they did. (laughs) And uh, I think the readers are really going to enjoy it. It's it's fun. Uh, It's insightful. And there's probably some things that uh, people have never heard before, probably a whole bunch of them. So... Hopefully they'll enjoy it, and um, hopefully we'll get to talk about it after it's released. Exactly. Uh, That would be great, Bobby. And, of course, a great baseball life uh, Bobby Valentine has led, and uh, so so many great experiences that that you will find in this book, folks. I wanted to ask you, too, Bobby, when did you know you wanted to manage 
And who was an influence on you? Who was your biggest influence as a manager? Well, you know, Tommy was my biggest influence because, you know, I mentioned I broke my leg and I had played for Tommy when I was a star player and uh, now I was trying to rehab and come back and I went down to the Dominican Republic where he was managing and I said, Tommy, let me play for a month for you and you could evaluate whether or not uh, I still have my goods. And, you know, the player's always the last one to know that uh, the skills had slipped. And after a month, we went out to have a pizza and a beer, and uh, he looked at me with tears in his eyes, and he said, you know, I think you should start thinking about coaching. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, from that time on, I was a player for another five years, I guess, but uh, I never was a very good player. And so I became a coach and and then got lucky enough to become a manager. And the rest is history, folks, like they say. Uh, and and cer- certainly, they say. Yeah, certainly a yeah. prolific career as a manager, too, Bobby. As a player, who would you say were your best teammate was through the years? Well, you know, the first uh, teammate uh, or roommate I ever had was in Ogden, Utah, it was the guy Tommy Pachoric. Ah, yeah, was, Tom uh, Pachoric. Sure, you remember Tom. Yeah. He's still my best friend. And, and ironically, um, well, maybe I should read his, his amazing stories of how Tom, Tom and I, you know, lived our lives together. You know, Bill Buckner was in that crew, who was a very dear friend of mine. Steve Garvey was in that crew. You know, Davey Lopes was in that crew. And we, we kind of lived our life as players together in winter ball and the major leagues, but it was, it was Tommy, Tom Pachoric, who, you know, was my best friend and, uh, to this day, still my best friend, funniest guy I ever was around and, uh, one of the nicest guys I've ever been around. Oh, a pretty good ball player too, Bobby. That's for sure. I remember Tom Pachoric. Now I, I want to ask you finally, Bobby, how's the campaign going up in Stanford? Well, so far, so good. We have two weeks and a day before Election Day on November 2nd, and I'm so proud of my team. You know, I built a team from scratch. I'm an unaffiliated candidate right. running against a powerful Democratic Party, and uh, right now we've got them on their heels. So I, I hope I can keep them on their heels and knock them out on November 2nd. We hope so, too. Well, Bobby Valentine, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for taking time out of your Sunday night and spend some with us down here on Long Island. Again, folks, the book drops November 30th. It's called The Valentine Way, My Adventurous Life and Times. Give them hell on Election Day, Bobby. You're a good man. Thank you. Great being with you. I'm sure your listeners enjoy it. Have fun. That's Bobby Valentine, folks. Coming up next, as is our habit at times, we switch gears. Any Chicago fans out there? Because Danny Serafin joins us after the break. in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.